0: Welcome. How are you?
1: I'm doing all right. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you, Nate.
0: We're excited to have you. Um, we've been watching you and, and seeing all the positive and self-help messages you've been putting out on Instagram for quite a period of time. Like, hey, you know what, this would be a perfect person to come on and join us and talk about things that we care about on this podcast. Self-help, personal developments, growth, self-care, yeah. those kind of things, relationships. So. Just to start off, let people know, Emily, your background a little bit, what you do and your areas of uh, expertise.
1: Yeah. So I am a psychotherapist, which basically means my therapy that I provide is talk therapy. And my licensure is I'm a marriage and family therapist, which means that um, my training is in relationships, how the family operates as a unit, how that impacts the individual, um, so looking at relationships as a system. So when I'm treating my client, I want them, of course, to individually get well, if I'm meeting with just an individual. But when I'm working with them, I'm always thinking about them in the context of the relationships. How do they show up in relationships? How do their relationships impact them? Um, what their family of origin stuff looks like. So um, that's how I tend to work with my clients. And I treat a whole variety of things. I have uh, clients that are coming in for personal growth, working on relationships, and then I have other clients who have pervasive mental illnesses. So
0: mm, anyway. That's interesting. Yeah. So when you say pervasive mental illness, what exactly, what does that look like?
1: we're talking about things that don't go away with exercise, water, sunlight, and journaling. So, you know, people that have um, things that impact their brain health that will never go away, things like bipolar or schizophrenia or obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, Mm -hmm. So there are things that people do have to endure for the entirety of their life, and it's a really heavy load.
0: I would imagine.
1: Yeah. Someone
0: Mm -hmm. with bipolar, for example, you know that they're living with that for the rest of their lives as you just alluded to.
1: Yes.
0: So how? what are some of the things that you're doing to help them at least mitigate those crazy swings from super high to super low, et cetera? Mm-hmm.
1: So one thing that I do is I definitely try to be in contact with that individual's um, psychiatrist. So that's a doctor that prescribes medication. And so because I'm the one that sits with my client more than the doctor ever will, we try and collaborate for the person's health. And then um, as you can imagine, dealing with an illness really of any kind, not just mental illness, but it can be so incredibly alienating and you can feel so alone. And so to have a space where you don't have to come in and try to get somebody to understand why you're suffering so much. There's just this knowing and understanding. Um, I'm also there to help just keep an eye on certain mood swings and see uh, when things could get dangerous for the person. Because in general, we're trying to keep people alive. Um, So we're figuring out coping skills for surviving, as sad as that may sound. Um, that is part of it. And then also people with mental illnesses can still have live beautiful lives. So they want to work on their relationships too. And so we are also talking about how do we incorporate your illness and caring for you? How do you explain that to a potential partner? How do you raise your children well in spite of these things?
2: So, yeah. I was going to so, say, do you, sorry, Nate, um, do your clients come to you willingly knowing that they think that they may have you know, one of these type of illnesses or is a family member often referring them to you or helping kind of coach them along to get some sort of treatment or or help?
1: It's both it's both. Sometimes people come in for something completely unrelated, and then I can see that there are concerning symptoms, or some people, they'll struggle with depression or or these mood swings for years and years, and they just think they're broken or they're lazy or something's wrong with them because they're not trying hard enough. And so to be able to tell someone, hey, you're not broken, you have an illness, let's work with it. You know, some people, they find it incredibly relieving and other people it feels like a burden like it's a curse forever so that's sensitive right how we discuss um potential diagnoses
0: yeah that's actually where i was going to go with that
1: mm-hmm.
0: is that yeah. it's got to be challenging at times to to some people that don't even know they have this disorder sure and then come and then how do you so how do you diagnose a disorder generally
1: so, sure so most people do have the sense that something doesn't feel right Um, And so I'm just listening for various symptoms. If I'm hearing people say um, they're referencing things that they're extra paranoid or, wow, I have all this energy. Oh my gosh, Emily, you know, I only slept two hours last night and I feel so good. I could take on the world. Guess what? I started five projects. Um, But then I know that when they called to come in to see me. They were talking about feeling very depressed and no energy. Um, honestly though, diagnosing is something that with time, it really helps. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about my days back in school or internship hours. I mean, diagnosing was so tricky for me. I was scared to do it. I felt uncomfortable doing it. And now after years and years of practicing, it's it, it comes more naturally. Sure. So,
0: yeah. Oh, that's, that's interesting. So we wanted to get into a few different topics. Uh, we're taking these just directly from your Instagram. Okay, um, so do let me, it. Let me Instagram. pull them up. This is the famous Instagram of, uh, of Emily Sanders Therapy. <laughs> Um, yeah.
1: The, for whatever reason, the word famous, that weirds me out. You know, <laughs> honestly, I just do Instagram because I feel like it's a way of giving back. There's a lot of people that need therapy, but they just can't afford it. We don't have enough clinicians. It's still very much a luxury item. And um, and then also there's a, a lot of, um, I don't want to use the word bad, but clinicians that are not helping and so I also want people to know what they should be expecting as a consumer. So I,
0: I got to go back real quick before we get to some of the Instagram do uh, it. messages. I
1: mean, yeah.
0: Back to the disorder and the bipolar. So you, you diagnose somebody. I assume that if that person's in a relationship, especially mm-hmm. that, that person's partner has to become part of the your sessions. And I assume that you have to, you know, kind of coach them as well to understand what the Entirety of their situation really looks like for the rest of time. Sure. Mm-hmm. How yes. and how is that? And how do you handle the spouse or the partner of the person with the disorder?
1: Well, it is. It is really scary. So I will say, a lot of mental illnesses tend to blossom in our late teens and early twenties. So when somebody is having new symptoms show up. Um, after their late 20s, we consider that to be a late onset. So part of the reason that I'm saying that is because a lot of young people that are getting diagnoses are not married yet. And so we can help teach them language as far as what they can help their partner understand. But in general, yes, I do want if somebody is married or is going to become engaged, I really do encourage that their partner comes in. One, so I can do some of the heavy lifting in terms of educating um, them. So
0: yeah, to let them know, hey, this is this person might not respond the way that you want them or expect yes. them to respond in certain situations. Yes. And then you guys have to do, be mindful and then say, okay, this is one of those moments. How do we now, how do we mindfully work through this moment?
1: Mm-hmm. And yeah. it sounds so grim, but if you're going to marry this person, that means you're marrying this set of um, extra zesty complications. And that's that's okay. We just want the two people to come in knowing what they're in for so they can partner against the illness and not end up fighting against one another. Go ahead, Lynn. And
2: I imagine too, if you have clients that are coming in, you know, that aren't treated, like Mm -hmm. you said, in their early 20s versus their later 20s, I can imagine it gets worse over time, right?
1: I mean, it can, it depends on the issue, you know, our brains are an organ, especially if someone's dealing with uh, more psychotic issues, that is really, really hard on the brain. It's very taxing. So yes, it can get worse over time. But if we're treating ourselves with compassion and treating it like a sickness, hey, what do you do when you're recovering from a fever, give yourself space to mend, then it, it helps a lot. Yeah.
0: Makes sense. So this is a good segue into uh, some of those topics that we talked about. One of your recent posts was uh, emotional maturity looks like, Mm -hmm. and then you have a whole set of bullet points. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about some of that because emotional maturity, it it seems kind of common sense, like, Hey, everyone Mm -hmm. should, should have it. And I think the quite opposite of most people, a lot of people don't have it Mm -hmm. and I don't know why. And I don't know if it's gotten worse over time. You probably have seen it. Um, the technology era the kids coming up being addicted to the phones the screen time no attention span and and you know no time for self care self reflection all these different things that are involved but let's take a look at what what some of this stuff is you say sure. emotional maturity taking responsibility for your mistakes growing from them
1: mm-hmm.
0: being able to tolerate your unpleasant emotions increasing comfortability with being vulnerable
1: mm-hmm.
0: so those are just a first of the few let's let's dig into some of that Mm -hmm. being unable to tolerate your unpleasant emotions. Uh, So uh, explain that.
1: We don't like to feel icky. (laughs) And there's a lot of things that we can do that get in the way. Let me rephrase that. There's a lot of pain that we cause ourselves trying to avoid pain. Hey, we don't, who likes to feel lonely? Who likes to feel disappointed? Who likes to feel rejected? Nobody, but unfortunately there's so much suffering that comes along with being alive. I don't know if anybody has noticed that, but sometimes being alive is really, really hard. And there's a lot of pain that comes from just existing in this world and interacting with other people. And we have to learn to tolerate those big feelings because if we can tolerate feeling sad or disappointed or pushed away or let down, uh, really contributes a lot to our resiliency. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's really, really important. And ideally, we have parents that, when we're young, help us uh, come alongside of us and help us shoulder big feelings together, right? Um, But a lot of people don't have parents that are able to come alongside them and help put words to what they're feeling, and make sense of what they're feeling and help them cope. And we're not born with the ability to self-soothe. That is a skill that we learn. We're not born with the ability to calm ourselves down at something that we are taught to do. Mm. And you can look at even a baby crying its little eyes out because it's hungry or its diapers dirty. And mommy or daddy come along and pick them up and change the diaper and feed them. And, and their little screams and their heart rate's really high, but then they're getting their milk and... They calm down and they feel better. And as parents, again, can come alongside and offer comfort to their kids, then a child's able to feel what it's like to go from high and come back down. And they start to be able to practice comforting themselves. They're all different kinds of ways. Um, so all that to say is, yes, learning to be able to tolerate unpleasant feelings. We, we learn how to do that.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. It's so important, too, to your point it builds character. It builds resilience. Yes. If you're always running again, back to what I was saying, if you're feeling unpleasant, Oh, let me just go scroll on Instagram. Let me go on Facebook. Let me Mm -hmm. go online. Let me go play a game. Stop. It's okay to just be in the moment and feel those feelings. Mm -hmm. If you're always running away from those feelings, Emily, you know, better than us. I would imagine you can never really, how are you going to handle that real rainy day? I know. How are you going to handle it when things get really tough? If you don't know how to cope with the, the minor nuances of day to day, let me let's continue on being able to state your needs. This is all emotional maturity. Mm-hmm. This next one I really like, um, apologizing when you're in the wrong.
2: Yeah,
0: why it is
1: doesn't so always feel so good? People? Why is it so hard for
0: people to do? Now listen, Lindsay has no problem doing it. I have no problem doing it, but for so many people, it's hard.
1: Mm -hmm. It is hard. Yeah. Which is unfortunate, but you know, believe it or not, I think most people really do want to do right by others. Most people really do have at least a shred of awareness that they want to treat other people with decency. And so when they hear that they have hurt someone or caused someone pain, they get very defensive. And a lot of people actually want to default to explaining why the other person should not feel hurt. Right, well, I that's not what I meant, or you know, you took that wrong. They really want to say, please don't be hurt, mm. and they go roundabout way of trying to talk somebody out of their hurt or or walling up because they can't tolerate the feeling of having done somebody wrong. So it's really a powerful thing to be able to say, Oh my goodness that hurt you? I'm so sorry. That's not how I meant it. Can I explain what I meant? Or I can see now that I'm hearing you say how that came across. Oh, that didn't sound good. I'm going to be mindful of that and try a different angle next time. Um,
0: So, How how do you help a couple? A couple has come to you and the one person is always having trouble taking responsibility for their actions. They won't apologize. You're trying mm-hmm. to help them break through the walls and the barriers. <laughs> sure. What is what? What One or two things that you're doing is say, hey, partner A, this is where the perfect opportunity for you to apologize to partner B. How, how do you deal with that?
1: Oh, it's so fun. I love it too, because <laughs> cu- couples bring their crap into session and that's what's supposed to happen right? When I'm sitting with a couple, I very much understand that each individual has their own poo and then they come together to create poo together. And so I could sit and referee clients, right? I mean, that's what a lot of couples think that therapy is, is that I'm going to come and say, you're wrong here and you're wrong here. And I mean, I guess I could do that. That sounds very uninteresting to me.
2: Um,
0: (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: say, that I, say that again say that again lens you you broke up
2: I said, I said if you're telling them and not having them recognize it it's almost like they're not learning from their mistakes yeah. or they can't fix
1: them. no and so when i'm sitting with couples i really want them to understand why certain arguments are so sticky And if I can help each couple understand how they trigger one another's hurts, now we have understanding as to why we're even fighting, right? So if I can help, you know, the wife understand um, that when she is, let's, the piddly example, but when she's pecking at her husband to do a task and he hasn't done it, that he could be triggered in the ways that, you know, a parent berated him when he was younger. And so rather than show up, it touches on shame for him. So he runs away. And then I'm helping the husband understand that when he runs away and he doesn't show up for his wife, that she feels abandoned, like a way that her, a parent may have also, you know, abandoned her when she was little. So it's not here to say, Hey, who Who's right and who's wrong. It's just saying, hey, look at when you behave in this way, it touches an old wound for your partner. And oh my goodness, what happens when you're each touching each other's wounds at the same time? That's when conversations get very explosive. And so I'm trying to help couples build empathy for one another's past and their experiences. And it's not any spouse's job to heal their partner, but we can create space where healing can happen and we can create space where growth can happen. And so when a partner can understand when there's understanding there, there's so much more capacity for empathy and they're willing to see how, you know, they're triggering their partner. And it's, it's
2: really, really, it's actually kind of precious. Um, It's special. That's one of the things that intrigued me about your Instagram to begin with was just how many, how many different topics that you touch on and how relatable they are to no matter what step in your relationship or in a past relationship healing through a traumatic relationship um you're very good at expressing those things for people to to be relatable for and back to that instagram post that nate was just talking about one of the bullet points towards the end that you said was trying not to control others. Mm-hmm. And as you also just mentioned, how you grow up and how you learn thing from things from your parents, or whoever is taking care of you. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things that I had to learn was, you know, my mom would ask me to clean, but I never cleaned it the right way. Mm-hmm. So huh. it almost like I didn't clean, right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, learning that everyone does thing in something in their own way. And that doesn't make it bad, or just because it's different than yours. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to the exact way that they do things versus learning that everyone's different in some in different capacities Mm
0: -hmm. yeah just to piggyback that because again so often it's we never stop to take the time to think about why is our partner reacting this way we don't Uh think of the necessary whys and as you point out a lot of it it's just it's triggers from from past situations
1: Yep. Like it or not, our past really affects us. And I understand a lot of people just want to move on and say the past is in the past. What's the point of talking about it? But unfortunately, so much of our behavior when we are in a highly emotional state is um, we, we operate off of emotion we don't operate off of logic. When we're grounded and we're calm, there's all this space to make really conscientious choices. But when we're triggered, it's just like catching a ball, right? There's so different when you're holding a baseball and deciding who do I want to throw it at versus, oh my goodness, someone's throwing a ball at me, I just have to put my glove up.
0: Right. So when
1: we are in a place where we're having lots of feelings, we have a default mode and it's often not so becoming.
0: Yeah, you mentioned not controlling others. There's one more I want to touch on, and we'll move on to another post, Emily. The the, the one that's um, ability to express and maintain your boundaries.
1: Yes.
0: Why is that important, and what does that look like?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, expressing our boundaries is so important because it's not just don't do this to me. Don't do this to me. Don't do this to me. There's a lot that goes into our boundaries. And that means that one, we have to have put in the time to understand what our own limitations are right? What are the things that I need? What am I capable of? What am I not capable of? What feels good to me? What doesn't feel good for me? And being able to one, identify those things and put them into words and for even just for ourselves, and then to go a step further and let someone else know what our limitations and our needs are. is It's actually really It's challenging. You know, it sounds so simple in theory, but for a lot of people, they're not even wanting to put in the time to face their own limitations or needs. One, because, you know, that may never have been a priority when they were little. Um, they may have learned that even when I say something that nobody listens so why bother it's actually a self-protective mode not to speak up or they've learned that they keep the peace by letting people walk over them there's so many different ways that we try to keep ourselves safe a lot of times by staying quiet Mm -hmm. and and while that may have fit us and worked for us, when we were little, our coping skills, we adapt to our environment. They don't translate so well into adulthood. And so when we're pushing people to say, hey, you have to speak up if you need something or if you want something or you can't do something, it sounds so elementary, but it's really hard for a lot of people. It feels very counterintuitive. And so it's something that literally must be practiced. It
2: it emotional like- maturity is Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Which just that emotional maturity is, is a lot of, it's a lot of work. It's uh, it, it, yes. and, like you said, practicing. Yes. And I never, I never appreciated as you put emotional maturity or emotional intelligence until, you know, my a couple of years ago into my thirties and mm-hmm. never recognized how important it is for not just a happy life, but a fulfilling life. And yes. just just understand and realize so much of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also having compassion. I think that for people that don't have a whole lot of emotional capacity, that they don't have a lot of emotional intelligence. Um, that doesn't mean we don't hold them accountable, but to try not to weaponize that against other people, right? We have our limitations for a reason. Um, so
0: it sounds like what you're saying too is the discomfort of setting the boundary with somebody, the discomfort mm-hmm. of having to tell them this thing that might be a little confrontational is going to be heavily outweighed by the pain that they feel when the when there are no boundaries over the course of time. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. short-term pain, long-term gain. I think that's yes. kind of what you're saying. Let's move on to, um, this was one that we we thought was interesting. Seven characteristics of homes with boundaries. Speaking of boundaries. Here oh, <laughs> sure. So- this was a post recently from uh, back in August. And a home with boundaries means talking about a home that has structure, offers containment mm-hmm. and space, provides safety, and has appropriate mm-hmm. familial roles.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: talk a little bit about these. There are seven things you can go through them specifically or just sure. talk in general.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, is there one that stands out to you that you have a question about?
0: Well, let's just go through them. Privacy, yeah. privacy is honored.
1: Hmm. Yes, we all need privacy, and there's a difference between privacy and secrecy. And sometimes that gets really confusing for parents. Right? It's important that everybody understands. There's no secret keeping. Secrets are toxic to families, and and um, it creates a lot of confusion. And a lot of eggshell vibes in the home. But privacy, we do have the right to be able to pull away and sit by ourselves if we want. Or the right to our own thoughts. And so we should have personal space. There's a lot of homes where children are either given too much space and they feel, they feel lost. Or they have absolutely no space and they feel completely smothered. And we're trying to balance that out.
0: Everything is a balancing test in life. Oh, it? yes. It, yeah. it really is. Uh, number two, clear limitations are established. We've kind of mm-hmm. talked about some of this stuff mm-hmm. with boundaries, but what do you, what do you mean about mm-hmm. limitations?
1: Well, the, okay. So the first thing that comes to mind is I've had several teenage clients who have have talked about their frustration with how parents will set a rule for the home and there is some sort of disciplinary measure, and they'll say, yeah, but I know that my parents will forget after a day. And believe it or not, they are frustrated by that because it starts to chip away at the trust in their parents. Because listen, you got to follow through on, yeah, we'll go get ice cream after school. Yeah, keep your word. But if you also tell a child, if you cross this line, this is what you can expect, and you do not follow through, that also takes away from trust in the parent. Mm -hmm. I've also had teenagers, too, who have said, (laughs) I've had two specifically say, how bad do I have to get before my parent tells me no? I don't feel like they love me. And so children want to not be in charge of their own lives. They want their parents to be in control. That doesn't mean that they want to be smothered or have no agency or be able to express themselves or or be weird if they want. Like there should be space for a kid to be them, but they want to know if push comes to shove. Do I have someone who is watching over me? Can I trust what they say? What are the rules? I, I want to know what's expected of me. That is like a warm blanket. For a kid and for your teenager, whether they admit it or not, they'll admit it to me. So there, there should be structure.
0: Uh, we talk about that all the time too. Kids need discipline. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Kids need, they want discipline. They don't think that they want it, right. (laughs) But they really do want it. They 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 crave it. They crave it to an extent. Um, number three, familial structure is in place. You talk about the of physical time, pi- power, hierarchy, physical space, etc. Mm-hmm. power, hierarchy. Mm-hmm. When you say familiar structures in place, talk about that and then this hierarchy thing.
1: Sure. And they, they somewhat go hand in hand. But what can happen a lot is if a parent is not very emotionally immature or very emotionally mature, and they get to places in their life where they feel very distraught, it is really common for them to reach for a child to talk to. They can reach for their child to help them make decisions. They can reach for their child to help care for the other siblings. And so what can happen is you have a child that's no longer playing the role of child in the home, but now they are on par with their parent or unfortunately sometimes even in charge of the parent, especially true when there's a home where there is a lot of addiction. Um, where now you have eight-year-old tucking mommy into bed and then Mm. going to feed siblings. And so if there is not familial structure, the people that are supposed to be in charge are not in charge, then things can go belly up and they can be really, that's really scary for children. Um, But also children are not supposed to be their their parents' therapists and whatnot. So yeah. So what
0: you're saying basically is the parent needs to be the parent. The parent should not be letting the child become the parent. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I think that kind of
2: goes straight to number five, where she says, parents do not rely on children for support, which I thought.
1: Which they do. They do. And they can, I mean, parents can do it in even passive ways, right? Where it's, oh my goodness, I don't know that this outfit makes me look good. I feel ugly today in front of their kid, hoping that the kid will say, oh no, mommy, you look pretty. There are ways that parents can start to passively elicit support from their children And parents just have to be mindful and go find a girlfriend to talk to, go talk to your partner. You know, there are other ways to get support besides your children, but your children are in the home. They're an easy grab. So it's something we have to be mindful of.
2: I am much more mindful now that, you know, my fiance has got three kids and they're girls and I might not be feeling an outfit one day, but I'm very conscious not to say, whatever it is that I'm feeling because I don't want them to think that they're not beautiful or they're not okay in their outfit or to think that, you know, we all have our moments, but they're kids. They don't have the mental capacity that adults do. Correct. Yeah.
0: So yeah, you went to number five, which was, which was perfect, but back to number four for just a brief second, bodily autonomy (laughs) is given kind of goes without saying, I would think there is no unwanted physical contact, but
1: Yeah. One would think, but we do in general in our culture. And honestly, I've done it with my children or at least the first two, especially when they were little. Oh, go hug. Oh, so-and-so wants a hug. Grandma wants a hug, you know? And so there's a lot of situations where we can encourage our children to use their bodies in a way that maybe they don't feel fully comfortable with. And I think there's a lot of ways that we can encourage children to be kind or acknowledge other people without having to use their body to do it.
0: So are you suggesting that it's uh, unhealthy if your two or three-year-old child doesn't want to go hug their grandparent or a family member you're saying that the child shouldn't be made to do that
1: well it may be controversial but i'm not going to use the word unhealthy i i that you know that's that's a big word for something that a lot of us do but i think it is important that if a child doesn't want to go give a hug why could that be right? Do they feel more comfortable by their mother's side? Is this somebody that to them is a stranger, even though the parents very familiar with, or, oh, you should know Nana, right? That they feel scared. And so if they're, if they are feeling uncomfortable and we're saying, hey, go do something in spite of you not feeling at ease with that, then we can passively teach our child to uh, not listen to their bodily cues. And so that's why we can still teach them to be uh, acknowledge their elders or someone loving in a different way. And, and that, and that's okay.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. So, but you're, you're, when you say that to me the flip side of that coin is if a child that's two, three years old is growing up in an environment where they never want to give somebody a hug, a family member, a loved one, a mom, a dad, and you allow them to never do that. I would imagine that that sticks with them into their adult lives, into their young adult lives. and they might not ever want to show affection to anybody. So I know it's an extreme thing, but I think what you're saying is is there's probably more, again, back to the balance, don't always force the child to hug, but teach them Mm -hmm. what a loving environment might look like without the physical contact. I think that's what you're saying.
1: Sure. And, And what we're emphasizing is not that warmth can't be a part of relationships, but just if you're feeling uneasy, you don't have to use your body to go and make somebody else feel better and and most children they actually really do want to be close to people so we want to encourage them to let their intuition tell them like who's who feels like a safe person and maybe they don't want to hug grandma when they first get to grandma's house because they haven't seen her in eight months but by the time they've had the cookies and run around the house that by the time they leave they're ready to hug So I, I I don't think parents need to get scared that they're going to inadvertently teach their child a different message.
0: Right. Like an anti-social for an extreme, extreme. Yes. No. Um, Number six, it is safe to ask for help. Mm -hmm. So is that, is that the children feeling safe? Is that what you're saying?
1: Mm -hmm. but our parents should be feel safe to ask for help too right just in general that there's a feeling in the home that if we need help we ask for it it's such great modeling to see children watch you know daddy ask you know their mommy if uh she can lend him a hand and vice versa, or for mom to say, oh, I'm feeling really down today. I'm gonna go talk to daddy for a few minutes in the living room, you guys go play. Like that's that's beautiful modeling. Um, a lot of children don't want to ask for help because they one, they may get some kind of reaction such as, well, you should already know how to do that by yourself. I showed you that last week. Or can't you see I'm busy? <sighs> And, or they're busy helping someone else. And so a lot of times the child, one, they're scared of the reaction they're going to get. They don't want to feel stupid or they feel like they're doing their parents a service by not asking for help. This is the way I can help mommy or daddy by doing things on my own. And to some extent, that's great. We want kids to grow, to be able to help themselves, but listen, kids don't stop needing our help to some capacity. And so um but there are a lot of children that feel like that is the way that they can be helpers is by not needing help themselves
0: and you say that children should grow to learn how to help themselves which goes perfectly into number seven
1: mm-hmm. uh
0: age appropriate decisions are encouraged mm-hmm. don't treat maybe a 10 year old like a five-year-old for a very elementary way to put it but explain yeah. that, more.
1: yeah so there's a lot of parents that that the, there's a pretty big split where we have some parents that think that children should be far more capable than they actually are. And that is something that having my own children has really, I think, rocked me. I remember thinking when my first was like two and me and my husband would be like, oh, just wait till she's old enough to do X, Y, and Z all by herself. And oh, we're going to feel so free then. And then five comes and we're not as free as we thought we were because there's a whole new set of needs. And so there can be a lot of parents that feel very frustrated by the neediness that comes with parenting. But unfortunately, being a parent means having little humans that need you. And that means when they're 13 and 15. So going back to age-appropriate, you know, decisions is there are some parents that they get so frustrated that they push their their children into a space of independence too soon, which is very anxiety provoking. And then we have parents on the flip side that are really scared of their children becoming their own person and making decisions without them and going into the world. And those parents can start to undercut decisions for the child and start to make decisions for the kid that they should start to release, right? Like maybe, you know, when you have a one-year-old, yes, you pick the onesie for them, right? You put the clothes on the one-year-old. But then by the time the kid is two, two and a half, maybe you're pulling two shirts out of the drawer and saying, which one do you want to pick? And then by the time the kid is, Six, you know, they're digging in the drawers by themselves and choosing from what's in their drawer. And then maybe by the time the kid is 10, you're taking the kid shopping with you and saying, What do you like out of this? What, you know, what represents you? So, a piddly example, but as the child ages, we're slowly releasing agency back to the kid.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's a tough thing for people to do because you're yes. always looking at your. You look at your, even your oldest child, you look at it as that little baby because it's that's what it is to you. It's hard.
1: Yeah, it is really
0: hard. Um, I have one, one or two more. And then Linz, I don't know if you have any uh, others before we wrap it up. Um, so back to the family thing, healthy home, healthy uh, habitat, whatever you want to call it. When what, How about two parents when they're in a mm-hmm. disagreement?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is it healthy for the children to see the parents argue, bicker, fight, yell, scream. Where, where's the line that you believe goes from healthy to potentially toxic?
1: Well, I do think it's really important for children to see disagreement in action, right? And what it looks like to make a decision when parents are in opposition. That being said, there do, there does need to be limitations on what a kid is invited into. Um, obviously parents need to understand that anytime there is yelling Um, that that starts to get children feeling very panicky quickly. So if a parent doesn't feel like they can keep themselves talking uh, respectfully to one another, then that should not be done in front of the children. We're not wanting a drag out situation in front of children, but for them to see, oh, well, I was going to, you know, cook this for dinner. Well, I don't have time to help you prepare that. Well, why didn't you tell me? You know, those kinds of little things. (laughs) That's completely normal. We do not want to create this picture that two people agree all the time because they don't. But we're not wanting children to have insight into intimate details of um, the parents' life. We're not wanting kids to hear, you know, that there is some sort of lack or urgency. We're not wanting to scare children with what's discussed in front of them. So I think minor spats, that's fine. But children should not be privy to uh, certain things that
2: could be very upsetting.
0: You have any more? Linz?
2: No, I just love every time I see one of her posts. It's just so relatable, no matter, like I said, no matter what walk of life you're in at that time. And it's also true. And a lot of it, um, when you read it, as you become more aware of emotional intelligence and self-help and growth and things of that nature, I think that, it's stuff that you might know subconsciously, or you've read before you've seen somewhere. And then when you see it again, you know, I, you're like, Oh, okay. You know, this is normal to feel this way. This this is how, you know, I should be establishing boundaries in my relationship. I should be more like this with my kids. It's just, it's super what the work that you're doing is super helpful, not only for your clients, but for your social media audience, and I do appreciate Thanks. that. oh that's know, so kind of your, to say. Instagram can be such a highlight reel, and <laughs> you know, yeah. stuff that's not real life, and to see stuff that is real life is refreshing. Yeah. yeah. I th-
0: How long have you been doing that for? And when did you when did you really start seeing traction, Emily, with the uh, Instagram stuff?
1: Oh, um, good heavens! I started my Instagram in 2020 in summer, Jeez, and I. No, and I didn't have the intention of it being a thing. I was just sharing other clinicians stuff. And I honestly, I went on there because I wanted to make friends and I wanted to connect with other therapists in my area. It sounds so pathetic. You know, I'm almost 40. I'm like, I want friends. Um, But then over time... Um, I just thought well I'd like to speak about the things that really matter to me and so I just started putting out my own stuff so it was kind of an accident um, but it's been a gift I really love to teach and so it's an outlet for me and I enjoy it and I, I want people's personal growth to bring them closer to others you know for if, if we're growing as an individual our relationship should be growing too. so yes no one's an island.
0: Um and I've asked this to several other people in the mental health space so I'll ask you as well. You mentioned sure. 2020 and of course that was the year covid hit us and
2: mm-hmm.
0: we've been forever changed it feels like. Um I assume that that's been a big thing that you've dealt with an uptick in your clients, people that are coming to you. There's a more do you find that there's more sadness now than there were several years ago?
1: Not no, not more sadness. I think during 2020, 2021 Uh, that particular stress really brought to life And made that pain that people were so easily able to run away from. It took away a lot of their options to avoid. And so there are a lot of people that for the first time really had to sit with their shit. Are we allowed to? They had to sit with their own issues. (laughs) They had to sit with their shit for the first time. And so I think that was really shocking for a lot of people. And then if we look at all just of the social unrest and really important issues that were put in front of people's faces. It was, it was a lot. Sure. Um, so it was just a stressor that, that revealed some cracks.
0: Well, we just went full yeah. circle because yeah. that's where we started this conversation. That and, uh, is. People cannot run away from the unpleasant feelings. And that's what 2020 brought to the forefront. Yes, uh, emily.sanders.therapy at Instagram will link you up in the show notes. Anywhere else you want people to find you, website, social media, et cetera.
1: I mean, you can find me on my website. There's a link to that in my Instagram, but it's just my name, emilyhsanders.com. And um, I'm on Facebook too, but that's it.
0: We're not going to see you on that. We're not going to see you on that new Netflix Selling OC show, are we?
1: (laughs) I don't think so. Unless I can find a way to get my mug in there.
0: There, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is fascinating stuff. We really appreciate your time and wishing you all the best. You're
1: welcome. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, Lindsay.